1: my camera flyer climbs out onto the camera step door opens they climb out and i'm giving my count ready set the next thing my, my camera flyer's hand is on my shoulder pushing me back into the plane don't jump but i had too much momentum on my go and i actually fell out of the plane
0: welcome back to the andy rowe show In 2008, adventure pioneer Holly Budge was part of the team that became the first in the world to skydive Mount Everest. She then returned to climb the world's tallest peak just a few years later, only to have her experience tainted by bullying and a vindictive campaign to discredit her achievements online. This is the story of strength, endurance, and mental fortitude. But before we start, you may have noticed I've been away and haven't released an episode for a few months. I've been working on getting my podcast production company up and running. I've been quite busy. But we have got it up and running now. And we're still working on the website, which will be podrowproductions.com. It might even be up and running when you listen to this. But you can email me at andy at podrowproductions.com. That's P-O-D-R-O-W-E My team is now working with corporate companies and private individuals to help produce podcasts and visual content as well to engage their clients. So things like LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, that kind of thing. So we not only record and edit the podcast, we film and repurpose the content for social media as well. So if you're part of a company who has a podcast or wants to launch one, get in touch with me. Email andy at podrowproductions.com. Likewise, if you want to launch your own podcast or if you have a guest suggestion for this podcast, just send me an email. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Holly Budge, thank you very much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Where's the best place you've skydived?
1: Oh, there's a question. I, I mean, I love Taupo. Taupo, you know, is a massive lake. But it was tough at times. Like in the winter, we'd be jumping... Regularly at fifteen thousand feet, and I actually got frostbite on my nose. Really? Yeah, and I, you know, it was kind of like it went a weird orangey colour. People were like, oh. what is that on your nose?
0: Oh no!
1: And because you take this is pre GoPro days. You know, we had a SLR, uh, not a film SLR, on the top of our helmets, and then a uh like a sony pc9 or something a video camera on the side of the helmet so the helmet weighed about four and a half kilos yeah
0: you look like something out of halo
1: yeah and then we took the photos with our uh with our tongue we had a switch in our mouth that we'd we'd touch with our tongue so um you dribble and then that would just come fly up and freeze on my nose so oh, then I went. Yuck. So I went to a doctor and was like, what what's this orange? <laughs> like, why is my skin gone? It was kind of really weird. And he specialised in frostbite and he came to the conclusion that because I was the only female jumping staff, he was like, you know, we have our skin's not as oily as guys. So I had to put this Vaseline on my nose from then on and wear a, a balaclava. So I looked like a, a terrorist you know people would take photos of me cuz i'd have this full face mask on with black goggles and it's like this is your cameraman or your camera woman it's oh. like really um but yeah it, it was really bad and cuz we were repeated repeated exposure every day all day um it it didn't heal up quickly so it later on it looks fine now like what it looks it, it, fine like later on in when i started climbing mountains you know it was it was a consideration that i've had frostbite on my of notes. course if you're going to be climbing yeah. everest
0: yeah. Yeah. let alone skydiving from there <laughs> frostbite's going to be an issue yeah so how did you go from that so you yeah. did skydive from everest how yeah. did that happen
1: yeah so i worked in taupo for quite a few years and got got a few thousand jumps and I'm. I'm just telling you that because skydiving Everest wasn't day one, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you're sitting um, saying you didn't just
0: no. go. I'm going to do that. And
1: it yeah. was actually uh, several years later that I heard about this opportunity to join a world first expedition, skydiving Mount Everest, jumping from twenty nine and a half thousand feet out of an aircraft that had never flown to that height before. Really? So, yeah. So we didn't even know if this it was a Pilatus Porter.
0: And Why it, wouldn't you just get an airplane that could fly from, like, that you knew could fly from that high?
1: I don't know. Like, they were pretty set on having a, a Pilatus Porter, and it, it got flown in from Switzerland to Nepal, five days. And then when they arrived, and this makes me laugh because the health and safety isn't. Normally at the top of the list in Nepal. So when it arrived, they said, Oh, you've got to prove that you guys can actually fly a plane. And we we were on a really tight weather window.
0: You've got to prove that you can the pilots, fly.
1: Yeah, the pilots that had flown it five days from Switzerland then had to do a written exam and a, a flight test when they arrived in, in Nepal. So oh, that, okay. That held us all the up. actual pilots had yeah. to do that, right? So luckily they, they passed. Yeah, it's like great. <laughs> um, so I'm jumping ahead slightly there. When I heard about this opportunity, I just knew that was an opportunity I didn't want to miss out on. So I rang yeah. up the, the company organising this or, or the individual, and um, you know, it quickly became apparent there were no other women signed up on that that expedition. So I knew that was my my way of uh, my hook for getting sponsors on board because it was a huge amount of money twenty four thousand pounds and he said you you know can i count you on board and i said yeah count me in that just set the goal to go and raise that money find sponsors get people to buy into me and and my vision
0: where do you start
1: oh it's i mean it, it gets slightly easier when when you've got a few big adventures under your belt but i wouldn't say it's ever easy like you know i've chatted to many adventurers about it and It's just very rarely does somebody have a a sponsor on tap, Mm. you know. So,
0: so okay, you've never had, you've never got sponsors on board before, and you're going into this expedition to skydive. So you're you're a
1: total newbie.
0: What was the first thing you did to start the ball rolling to get that money?
1: Um, Well, because I'm a designer, I built a really good-looking website and put together a a presentation deck had a broch- little leaflet about it. So it looked professional from, from the... the you know, right, concept. so you're credible. Yeah. Then it's just a case of, of getting yourself out there. It's it's a lot of cold-cooling, following up. It's tough.
0: So did you find companies that have sponsored events like this in the past yeah, and th- just start cold-cooling them?
1: Yeah, pretty much. You follow every, every single lead, f- anywhere and everywhere. And most companies just want to give you equipment.
0: How much cold calling was there like how let's say to get relentless what was your ratio of like to get one client on board that was going to sponsor you
1: you might have to make a 100 phone calls to get two leads
0: just leads just to get them to consider you
1: yeah oh it's brutal and it's so competitive especially nowadays i mean this was going back uh 14 years ago but nowadays everyone's an adventurer yeah, no, you've got to be creative, I think, especially like climbing Everest. Lots of people climb Everest. So I actually got sponsored by an IT company who were looking to promote Wi-Fi in remote places.
0: That's smart, okay. And when
1: I actually got to the summit, because I was on the north side, the Chinese had put a lot of infrastructure in, uh, mobile phone towers, and
0: ah. you've
1: got 3G on the summit. So I carried this great big modem up there, turned my phone on, 3G.
0: Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. Happy so okay, days. so let's back it up. So you've got so you've got the sponsorship on board. You raised your 24k. Yeah. And you've got to now you're going to be skydiving from Everest. How do you start training for that?
1: Um I just, you know, got physically fit, did lots of of cardio cuz even the trekking up there is demanding, you know. So even though you don't necessarily need to be overly fit to skydive the the trekking up was fairly demanding um the trekking
0: up to up to base camp
1: yeah well we yeah sort not of far from on en route to base camp yeah so, so it's about
0: a 10-day hike isn't it
1: yeah so i actually got a um it was really one of my leads was a um was a gym in bristol so okay. i was living in bristol at the time and i just rang him up and he said really cool guy um andy wadsworth he's called and he he said i just caught him he never picks up his phone he was in a cafe with his wife phone rang and i explained what i was doing and he gave me free training for 6 months i saw him four times a week and he was brilliant such a support so yeah i did a lot of training and then i went in a hyperbaric chamber and i forget the name of the guy but he was he just looked like a mad scientist and he'd built this hyperbaric chamber in his in his in his farmyard.
0: Great, what a lead! Had these
1: little portholes, and he'd be like looking through there with his curly hair and his. I mean, glasses. this is
0: starting to sound like a horror movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we were on like exercise bikes and treadmills. Oh, and...
0: so you're on exercise bikes in the in yeah. the chamber? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's obviously for people that don't understand what a hyperbaric chamber is. It's
1: so yeah, they just like they were taking taking us up to a certain altitude and then monitoring your, your heart rate yeah. and, and everything.
0: So the chamber. Replicates the yeah. the oxygen levels that are at the same height as yeah. Everest, and we
1: went high, like oh my god, what, what we, sort of oh, height. Forget now, it was like twenty three, twenty four thousand feet.
0: So you're up at twenty three, twenty four thousand feet. The first yeah. time that you get on a bike, yeah, like what what's what are the levels like? Are you, how long are you lasting?
1: To put it in perspective, if you'd like been out the night before, smoked I don't know forty cigarettes, had a load of beers, that that's how you felt. Just ah. Uh rough you know just and your breathing was tough but the reason i was laughing earlier when you said about your training is i used to smoke 20 a day mobile lights and i used to joke with people but i wasn't joking that that was part of my training for mountaineering because if your lungs are working at suboptimal conditions at sea level when you get up to altitude you know you're in your happy comfortable you're in your comfort zone and there's actual research out there to suggest that smokers, you know, fare better at altitude. And Really? Yeah, and you see um, Sherpas, they, they smoke. I mean, obviously we can't compare ourselves to Sherpas because they're just incredibly efficient at altitude, way more than us. But yeah, they're, they're up there on summit having a cigarette. <laughs> I didn't have a... So, so, I've never had a cigarette on the summit. That was... I'm just... <laughs> so the Sherpas,
0: they... As up on Everest, and they're just having darts.
1: Yeah, like I, on Everest, I didn't see anyone having a cigarette, but on other mountains I've climbed, there, there'd be a Sherpa that would light up. But you'll see cigarette butts quite near to, to the summit, like on Everest, and you're like, who is sitting here having a cigarette? I mean, that's just yeah, it's crazy.
0: Okay, let's get back. Let's get back to the to, yeah. No, I don't apologize. So you've been training in the in the chamber. Yep. So you're,
1: I, I arrived feeling pretty fit and strong. But, Was that
0: all the training you did? So you could train for your skydive yeah. in the gym and yeah. in, in, a, in a hyperbaric chamber? Yeah,
1: and I did, did some, uh, you know, got back into doing some jumping and got myself I a suppose skydiving. that's all you need
0: to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then so when you're doing the jump, so, yeah, so you're in Nepal, the pilots then do their exams – because Nepal's suddenly decided they're going to do a bit of health become and safety. Health and safety, safety conscious. We better like, check that the a... pilots that flew here can fly. <laughs> yeah. And so then you, then what?
1: So yeah, well, then we got to where we were jumping from the plane. We did a practice jump, 18,000 feet.
0: So 18,000 feet. What's the standard skydiver if you're a punter going in? like if you're how? a punter, you About jump
1: out at 12,000. 12,000, yes. Yeah. And you land at sea level. Yeah. So we so you- jumped out 29,500 feet, landed at 12,000 feet. Right, okay. So it's the same proportions as a normal skydive. Just I was landing at 12,500 feet and in New Zealand I'd be jumping out at that height. So my parachute was about three times the size of my normal chute. Of
0: course, because the thinner. thinner.
1: Exactly. I had a lot to think about with what happened next. So okay. we, we flew up to 29,500 this feet. This is jump day. This is jump day. Okay got oxygen on in the in the airplane you switch to just a a little cylinder when you get near to to jump altitude door opens first person to skydive everest was three seconds in front of me he jumped out he didn't have a cameraman my camera flyer climbs out onto the camera step door opens they climb out and i'm giving my count ready set And next thing my my camera flyer's hand is on my shoulder pushing me back into the plane don't jump but I had too much momentum on my go and I actually fell out of the plane. Unbeknown to me, I learned later, the pilot held up the stop sign and said to, to don't let the jumpers out, but it was too late. So I knew that there was almost complete cloud cover by that right. stage over the ground. So I had no visuals where I was going to land.
0: When you felt that arm um, yep. and you knew that you shouldn't be falling out in the moment, did you think, yeah. shit, is my, is my parachute not on? What's going, what, what? did you freak out you must
1: yeah it's a bit freaky like i have done all my checks a bit
0: freaky you're jumping from the height of Everest yeah. and someone's told you don't jump and you've fallen out of a plane
1: well working in like skydiving for years and and sort of being around bungee as well like the bungee jumpers they love it saying to people oh, don't jump yeah oh, no just as they've gone but you know when you're you know you're good at, you know you you're experienced and right. you've done you... all your checks and you're like right hang on a minute what what's happening but i knew it's it was the clouds when you're at that altitude they they come in so fast you know within very short space of time you can be completely engulfed in in clouds
0: what's a short space of time so does it oh. could they roll in in the they space of 30 in. seconds a minute 5 minutes yeah, half an hour
1: yeah they roll in quick um, like in some instances 1 minute you're not in cloud and the next minute you're, you're completely engulfed. You know, it's, it's, it's very changeable uh, mountain environment. So the higher you go, it, it just seems to...
0: The quicker the clouds uh, go.
1: It's unreal, mm. the weather systems. Um, so I had no visuals on the ground. My camera flyer, I would have totally understood if they had stayed in the plane.
0: So you couldn't see anything?
1: No. Well, I could see. It was amazing, beautiful blue sky. And then this layer of cloud and then the summit of Everest. And that's all you could see.
0: Oh no. It was unreal. That's amazing. It was like the
1: summit poking out above this layer and this beautiful blue. And I've got the most amazing photograph that that the the camera person took. It was incredible. But I also realized there were very few safe places to land. Of course. So was it an incredible skydive? No, it was pretty terrifying. And the. The parachute was really, my rig was really big and bulky. And, you know, you just, uh, it all felt a bit clunky. Come through the clouds, pulled my parachute, 18,000 feet, parachute opened. But the oxygen mask was obscuring my vision. So I decided to take the oxygen mask off so that I could just focus entirely on getting down to the ground. Now, when you're skydiving, there's no one to ask. You have to back yourself to make, good decisions you can't say oh you know you've got to you've got to make that decision for yourself and um you know i felt comfortable to take the oxygen mask off i had done quite a few high altitude jumps without oxygen took the mask off and i made it back to the landing area about two minutes after i landed complete whiteout couldn't see anything just to finish on that, two days later, another team of skydivers went up. They jumped out. Pilot held a stop sign out up just as they got out. It's like, don't let the jumpers out. Too late. They're already out. They had cloud that went all the way to the ground. You know, one girl broke her. I think she broke her femur and her ankle. Another guy landed in a yak farm. He he didn't break any bones. But, you know, it's so I felt very fortunate to walk away safely from that jump.
0: Crazy. And we had
1: tiny weather windows. I think our weather windows were like five o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock, like a four-hour window in in that in twenty-four hours, because the weather was, you know, it was it was it was all over the show. The weather.
0: When you uh, let's say it's a perfect day, what, what, what's the? Where are you supposed to land? Like, what are you landing on? Because when so I we, when I picture Everest, yeah. I picture base camp, yeah. or I I picture. Um, spiky mountain rocky mountains i picture gullies yep. rivers so i don't we, picture we actually a big flat landed
1: field on a disused runway so we were picking rocks and stuff off that morning and the reason it was disused is they built this this runway to fly japanese tourists in because it's it's the first really good view of everest or you know it's got a great view of everest and then on the first trip Four people, I forget now, two or three or four people died. What? Because they just got flown straight into 12,000 feet in helicopters. Oh. Without acclimatizing. Oh. Yeah, so they realized that wasn't going to take off as a tourist venture. So this, this runway become, you know, pretty disused. But it was perfectly big enough to land on, assuming we made it back there. Around it. Very few safe places to land. So going back to what I said to you about in Taupo, having the, the lake as a as a, a very distinctive feature to work yeah. off, you know, and I could open my parachute anywhere over Taupo and know exactly where I was and how I need to get back.
0: And you could see where the landing spots are. Yeah. And, and if there was cloud coming, you'd see it coming from That's a mile it. away.
1: But there it was totally alien to me. You know, you can look at aerial photos and whatever, but... Yeah. You're like, whoa, I've got to get down safe. And then what happened next, Andy, was uh, Reuters, the news agency, were there when I landed with a microphone. And I wasn't expecting that. Probably a bit naively, I wasn't expecting the global media to pick this story up like it did. And it just I kind of stepped into this whirlwind for the next week. And Had
0: I, you ever spoken to the media beforehand? No,
1: so that I wasn't prepared for that either that was just thrown in so the next day I got back to Kathmandu and flew home and um, I was on the front page of the Kathmandu Times and then we got upgraded on the way home thanks to Virgin and then straight away put in a hotel in London for 24 hours and did six live TV interviews CNN CBS and that was terrifying you know I was on the BBC red sofa the breakfast show Mm. And that was great, because it's like chatting to you now. I could mm. see see someone and, and have a conversation with them. But with um, CBS, they put me in a room with a camera. And they said, don't look anywhere else but this camera lens. And don't worry, you're just going out live to America. And I had an earpiece. And this American lady was asking me questions. And I'll try not to look anywhere but that camera. It's a bit like when you do a TED Talk. And they're like, don't move anywhere off the red red spot oh do they and the minute someone tells you that you become conscious of ah, I just want to go over there <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah she asked me how did you acclimate
0: hey, what does that mean
1: well exactly what I thought at the time and I was really hot around the collar at that moment and I thought uh so I answered it in a British very British way and just said very well thank you and you Acclimate means acclimatise in American.
0: Does it actually, or she misread something? No, they
1: just pronounce, they just say, how do you acclimate? What? It's like, oh.
0: (laughs) How do you acclimate?
1: I've acclimated really well. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like I was saying to you earlier, when you do live TV or radio, you're on the, you know, you're under the pump. The brain must be firing just so much faster than normal, just trying to hold it all together and... Yeah, that threw me off.
0: When you talk about the record of being the first female to jump the height of Everest, how do you guys, how do you refer to it?
1: People say to me, who was the first person, as if that might have happened years or months or whatever. They don't realize that we were both in the same plane doing something that had never been done before.
0: Did it cross your mind at all to maybe when you're free falling to bomb it? So that you <laughs> were the f- so then if you were the first one down, yeah, then you're the first. Do you
1: know what? I didn't, Aren't you? Didn't,
0: Isn't that how you do it? Your first one to land is going to be the first yeah, one. Yeah, I
1: mean, jump. do you know? It didn't bother me though because for me, the sponsorship based on being the first woman, right? You know, it didn't. It didn't. It, as, as long as I, I kind of got that, the sponsors were happy.
0: And I guess that would have made it easier. So you obviously decided, I'm going to go and climb that thing now.
1: Well, I did. So when I first saw it, I thought. I'm going to go back and climb that but I didn't know anything about mountaineering so you know a bit like when I decided to become a skydiving camera woman I was, then I set about learning how to skydive I had to set about learning how to climb big mountains or mountains and then big mountains um, so that happened uh seven, nine years later I climbed Everest and I did a lot of climbing in those nine years beforehand so again as I said skydiving Everest wasn't Day one wasn't my first jump. Climbing Everest wasn't my first mountain. Right. But I met people on Everest that had never stepped foot on snow before. What? Let alone put on a pair of crampons. And that just, well, it, ugh, I couldn't get my head around that on many levels. Like, why would you turn up so underprepared?
0: Who are these people? Are they just rich people that are like, oh. Just box gonna...
1: stickers. Yeah. And, th- you know, there's over 260 bodies on Everest. More on you know, there's a lot of bodies and and a lot of those are sherpas because they just get sucked into people that don't have the experience to be there, and and they can't turn them around. They don't want it. They get summit fever, and then as we said, weather changes in a heartbeat, or something else happens, and suddenly they're they're in a very uh, difficult situation, sometimes fatal. Everest is an interesting place. Like, we all know there's bodies on Everest, but until you actually step over a body, like, that had quite a profound effect on me.
0: I bet it did.
1: The first body I saw was uh, coming into Camp 3, the last camp before the summit. And, uh, Are the
0: camps... So you climb the north face? Yeah,
1: climb the north side. I climb the north side to avoid the queues.
0: Smart. Yep. When you say Camp 3, because I know there's camp up to Camp 4 on the, on the main side, the south side... Yeah, are they, They're different camps. Different camps. Different sides of the mountain, different camps. That's it. So, you've got a, so you're getting up to camp three, which is... Yeah. There, is there four camps on the north side or three? No,
1: there's three. So three, got, okay. Um,
0: and this is the Chinese side. Yeah,
1: so you've got base camp, advanced base camp, then you go up to the north coal, and then you've got camp two, camp three, and then the summit. Okay. And when I say camp, that's a loose term. Like these are... You know, you should feel like you're on the edge of the world. Very barren, very exposed places. Quite hostile, especially when the weather turns. And and we had very little weather windows that year. I think the following year they had an 11-day window. We had tiny little weather windows in 2017. What, like
0: four or five days?
1: Not even. Just a few hours here and there.
0: Really? Yeah. So you got a few hours to get up from one camp to the top? Well, no,
1: it just meant... Uh, so I climbed as a two-person team, which is quite rare. Most people are in big, big commercial teams. And me and Jangbu, I'd climb with him before because I was working as an expedition leader out there, so the Sherpas I knew already really well. I mean, it was great being in a small team because we could make decisions quickly. We were flexible. So we found ourselves standing in a queue on Summit Push, even on the north side. Nothing like the south, but still in a queue and i don't even like queuing in my local supermarket let alone on it's
0: very un-english of you
1: (laughs) so we made a plan to avoid standing in queue so we stayed in camp three uh, for an extra seven hours and let the two teams that were ahead of us go go up ahead of us and that's great being a two-man team that you can make those decisions quickly but then we still found ourselves queuing because then there was a bit of a bottleneck as those teams were coming back down we were going up But we would have been the two highest people on earth. You know, there was no one ahead of us on the north side. We were going up. And we got the summit of Everest to ourselves for 30 minutes.
0: 30 minutes? You stayed up there for 30 minutes?
1: That's unheard of. No one sits on the summit of Everest for half an hour. I say no one, not many.
0: And what did you do, just Just, spark up a Marlboro light?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Just tried to take it in, like... Um, and, and I could see, because it was such a beautiful, clear day. Well, that time was beautiful and clear. A storm rolled in. I'll come back to that. But you could see the whole route we'd taken. I could see base camp. And I text one of the Sherpas from the summit. Because so you had your summit, Wi-Fi. Because I have my Wi-Fi. I have my 3G. And I, I just said, I'm on the summit. And he was like, and I could see base camp. I could see advanced base camp. And I could see the route we'd taken over the past few days. Because when you climb Everest, you do different acclimatisation rounds. So you have three rounds. Hmm. First time you arrive, you drive to base camp, 5,000 metres. Brand new roads, Chinese have put in, switching back through the mountains. And when you arrive at 5,000 metres, you feel pretty rough. I mean, it's, it's a pretty high place to be hanging out. And that was my home for 47 days. And what was interesting, Andy, is base camp became like an oxygen haven, The the more you got into the trip and the higher you went on the mountain, when you got back to base camp after going up to North Cole or whatever, when you got back to base camp, you were like, oh, yes, I can breathe so well here. But when you first arrived, just felt awful, headaches. So your body is incredible how much it can acclimatize. But once you get up above 8,000 meters into the death zone, as it's known, there's no acclimatizing. There's no life there. Nothing lives at those sort of altitudes. No,
0: and they caught the death zone because your body is literally dying yeah. while you're up there.
1: So you want the idea is to get in and out as quickly as possible. But me and Jang Boo, we got stuck in a storm because we, we got to the summit half one in the day, which was late. But we'd planned that because we'd waited seven hours for those two teams to go ahead of us. So we knew we were late in the day, but we felt comfortable with that. We'd planned for that to happen. But then this storm rolled in and we got stuck. We had to spend a night at Camp 3, 8,300 metres. And we were the only two people up there, living people. It was just a terrible night, as you can imagine. Oh gosh. Quite a lot happened that night and it was just, it was just very, you know, you just feel awful. It was a scary place to be, mm. like trying to lay in your sleeping bag and sleep at that sort of altitude. You know, you, you feel horrible. Like you feel like a really bad hangover. I knew there was a body right next to that campsite and he was an Australian guy who had died the day before. What? And he was, you know, sort of face down in the snow, brand new down jacket, down pants, brand new mountaineering boots. And that really hit home how fine the line is between life and death up there in those altitudes. Where else in the world do you step over a dead body and carry on? You know, I liken it to imagine doing something like the London Marathon. Someone's died and you just step over them and run on. just wouldn't happen. I mean, however prepared you are, there's always, you know, you get unlucky.
0: At that point, your thought processes and it must be just so clear on what, you have to do and what your situation is. Because if you, what I'm trying to get at here is like everyday life, there's so much stuff that's getting your brains trying to filter. There's so much going on, whether it's your phone, whether it's some advertising, whether it's a car going past outside, whether there's so much going on in your your everyday life. Whereas you're in that point and you've got this dead Australian, you know, your situation could go either way. Your thought process must be so crystal clear.
1: It is. And and that's one thing that keeps drawing me back to the mountains and mountaineering is the simplicity of of life in the mountains. So not only have your thoughts got to be clear, you know, you've got to have some clarity or else you need to be going back down and and soon. Um, But also your backpack, everything you need is on you. And I'm really particular about everything has a place, because I need to know if I need something, I need to know exactly where to go and get it. Mm. I don't want to be rummaging through my backpack. Um, so there's clarity, and you just you have everything on you that you need to survive, hopefully. That's the idea anyway. Um, mm. But there's fog, there's brain fog as well. Of course, when you're up at these altitudes, it's, you know, it's a, it's a constant challenge to you sort of almost sometimes second guessing yourself because you're like have I got altitude sickness have you got clarity of thought and would you know if you didn't you know if you get sort of uh you know really sick you get people that are trying to take all their clothes off I've heard of the Sherpas talk a lot about clients of theirs and they're just With taking off their oxygen mask taking off all their clothes and it's it's quite a common symptom you know acute mountain sickness and it's it's freaky i mean you don't want to be getting your kit off and, and taking your oxygen off it's an interesting place to be i turned up very prepared i'd done lots of climbing before i went to everest um i'd done i'd led expeditions i'd done you know first aid training done all sorts so i felt confident in my own abilities to be there but I definitely met the people, like I said, that never stepped foot on snow. People that are on oxygen at advanced base camp. If you're on oxygen at six and a half thousand metres, and then you see people climbing with their oxygen turned on up to full, like four litres a minute, they got nowhere to go. When I was climbing, I think I was climbing at two litres a minute and sleeping at half a litre a minute. So that you can turn the oxygen up if you need it, if you get mm. sick. But if you're already maxed out on your oxygen, where are you going to go?
0: Yeah, you're in trouble. And the
1: only thing that's going to save you up there is oxygen. That is like gold. People stealing oxygen tanks. Do they? Yeah. And and companies get heavily fined for it.
0: Did you come across that?
1: Yeah. And I carried my, you know, um so me and Jangbu, we we sort of... Uh, fairly equally weighted we we were pretty equal team. So my backpack going to the summit was about 13 and a half 14 kilos right and that's heavy his was probably a bit heavier but
0: because you did start in a bigger team though didn't you
1: I did yeah I left that team uh within probably the first 10 days of a nine-week expedition I, I separated from that team and they were I was the only girl in a team of 16 men it was kind of like a a pretty low brow stag do that turned into it sounds like
0: fun. Give <laughs> me on it.
1: Might have been fun if you are one of the guys, maybe. And I'm, you know, I'm used to hanging out with the guys, but it just, you know, their, their average word to describe a woman was prostitute, and it was oh. just, you know, oh, what are we going to watch in the in the mess tent? Oh, let's put some porn on, and you know, it was a very like it was pretty low brow stuff, but it became like a pack mentality. And so I got sick. First acclimatisation round, went up to North Col, touched North Cole, 7,000 metres, came back to advanced base camp, back down to base camp. And I got this really um, bad stomach. I couldn't hold any food in for about five days. So I was, you know, really poorly, got really weak and sort of felt that all my, my dream of, of climbing Everest was, was slipping away and all my preparation was... You know, possibly in vain, you know. Hadn't really had a good shot at it. And uh, not one of those guys came to visit me in my tent.
0: Oh, that's poor form. And they
1: weren't they were less than three or four metres away oh, in, that's in the mess tent.
0: T- terrible form.
1: So I knew there and then that if they didn't have my back at base camp, they didn't they certainly not gonna have my back higher up on the
0: mountain. Oh yeah, they're leaving you face down in the snow. Oh yeah. They they're they're gonna
1: step over me. They then they wouldn't they'd just leave me like half dead and and carry on. You yeah, know, I was just like these guys have not got my back, and and so I moved in with the Sherpas. As I said before, that I'd work with them, climb several mountains with these guys, and and these were my friends. And I was pretty honoured, I'd say, that they brought me into their camp because they don't want, you know, they want their own space and and they they you know none of our camp was very fancy i mean some of the the camps in in base camp were over the top you know some of them had um plastic palm trees some of them had f- foosball tables
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Some of them had waiters serving three-course meals with those platters.
0: Are these really rich people that have got there, obviously. Yeah, like.
1: some people are paying like 50000 US dollars, right? How much upwards. did it
0: cost you after you got all the sponsors? Uh,
1: so, here? I, so sponsors paid ballpark, ballpark, um, 17,000 17, pounds. That's cheap. Yeah, and it's no frills. This company is like there's no rugs and the floor in the the mess tent. You're on gravel, right. you know, and it's. But I like that. Because yeah, if it's... you've got this immense comfort at base camp, it's like, hey, guys, it doesn't matter how much money you're you're paying. The minute you step out of base camp and you go up to advanced base camp, the luxury gets less. The minute you step out of advanced base camp, you're no different than anyone else. You're in a tent. The, all you're paying for really is that, that those palm trees and that foosball. And, and they had like Serrano ham that they could shave off when they got a bit peckish, stuff like that. That's not going to save you. Now you can get uh, like a cabin with your own private hot tub. So think base level comfort with the company I went. And I had no problem with that. I want to have gravel on the floor when in your dining tent and and absolutely no no frills. But then you move in with the Sherpas and it's even less sort of frills. So that didn't matter. I'm not sure they even knew I'd left the camp. I could have still been in my tent. (laughs) I could have been dead in my tent. And possibly no one would have known for a while.
0: A while days?
1: Possibly. Like the Sherpas came breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. Oh, the Sherpas they brought did. me food, they brought me water. Not that I could hold any of that food down, but the point is they came and they checked on me every day.
0: The other guys probably didn't want to catch whatever you caught.
1: You can you can shout for a tent. You may be like, Hey, you alright? Are you alive? Can I get you anything? and it was it was bad i had to take 3 consecutive rounds of antibiotics so by that point you just got nothing and i didn't have any probiotics so you you know you you're all over the show you your gut you know you got nothing the antibiotics just kill everything anyway i got myself together and and then i just carried on um climbing with with the uh with the sherpas but like i said andy I just saw some stuff on the mountain that that really made me question, you know, humanity. One of the Sherpas um, was having a really tough time, got really sick. And it was a question as, can he have oxygen? He needed oxygen. Who's going to pay for it? What? It's like, and these Sherpas. What, is this
0: in the group of 16 or is it? It was
1: the Sherpas for this group. And and it was questionable whether he was A, going to have oxygen and B, who was going to pay for it. And and this guy was really sick. And I sat up with him for hours. And I was like, I'm going to pay for the oxygen, 500 US dollars. And I was like, I'll pay for another one if I need to. You know, that's just what you do. There was loads of incidences that happened that I just thought, you know, this is so wrong. And these Sherpas, my friends, they were getting paid five US dollars a day. And they were working 16, 17 hour days to facilitate the box stickers. Some of the, they're just treated badly you know, they rely on tips and, but people manipulate their, them with the tip. Oh, we will give you a bigger tip if you do X, Y, and Z. And Aww. then that tip might never materialize. Aww. Anyway, these guys, they just, I just stepped away from them and um, I carried on, did my thing, did another round of acclimatization and I was strong and they knew I was strong. And I think there was a bit of an ego in there too for them. That was a bit of a, a, a dent to the ego that, you know the only woman and she's she's doing well and some of them weren't doing so well and i summited and half of them didn't summit and on everest what i found was uh i haven't seen this on another mountain is the people everyone wants to come home a hero but the people that don't summit have to find a reason as to what you know what a why they didn't summit and and then find a reason to become a hero It got really nasty. Um, One guy, I saw him practically crawling into advanced base camp. A Sherpa was carrying his bag because he was that weak. And he was very ill. He shouldn't have gone any higher than advanced base camp, 6,500 metres. Two days, three days later, this guy is um, at 8,000 metres, snow blind, frostbitten, in a very serious condition.
0: So he summited? Didn't summit. 8,000 meters though, so yeah, he's very on the close. Way to the
1: summit, yeah. And so I'd just come down from the summit, pretty, you know, pretty exhausted, had spent a night at 8,300 meters, Camp 3. The guys, some of the guys that were in the team were at Camp 2, and none of them had radioed through and said, are you all right? We didn't really need them to because we were okay. But there wasn't any, There wasn't, wasn't that reaching out to be like, you know, hey, guys, we know you're up there. We know there's a storm. Are you all right? And um, so I came down because uh, the storm had blown away a load of tents and some tents had been ripped off whilst mm. people were inside the tents at the lower camp. So we were at Camp 3. At Camp 2, some people's tents, they'd just been left sat on the, the ground sheet and the top of the tent had been ripped off. That's how strong this storm was. And they'd lost gear. So on the way down, I knew I'd get back after that storm. Me and jang Bu were on a mission. We need to get back to advanced base camp, get off this mountain. Because this storm wasn't, it was just getting worse. And sometimes we were lying flat on the ground just because the winds were that strong. Couldn't even crawl. You just had to lie on the ground.
0: Otherwise you'd get blown off the mountain.
1: Could do, yeah. And uh, so I bumped into some of these, these guys and, you know, I had no were issues. they on the way up? Or? They were on the way up. And I had no issues. I'd moved out of the camp. I was just doing my own thing. So I gave them all my equipment. I had my sleeping bag because they'd lost some of their equipment in this storm. I gave any food I had. I, I gave my, my goggles, um, you know, my, my buffs, my um, water, anything I had, I gave to them. And this one, is the
0: same group that same group the nasty guys, yep. yeah.
1: And I just thought, you know, I'll be the bigger person here. You know, I've been up, I've had a good and responsible key word there summit, and and I'll, I don't need my gear. I know I'll get back to advanced base camp, and I'll, I'll have spare sleeping bag, everything else down there. When you're up at eight thousand meters, you don't have any spare gear, so that is the difference between someone summiting or not mm. potentially and uh, so yeah they went up and they were up there for days I mean they were up there for a long time around 8,000 meters they got pretty beat up with frostbite and all sorts but this one guy the guy that was sick he came back down in a very poorly way and the leader of that team said oh Holly you're gonna have to take him back down with you to base camp and I was like no no I, I can't I'm exhausted like and you've got to remember, in the time that we'd been up to our summit push, you know, it was uh, it, the melt had started. So all those sheets of ice we were walking acro- across were now like raging rivers. And it became a totally different environment. It was a 12-hour hike from advanced base camp to base camp. And it, it was, you know, it's a pretty hostile environment, but made even more hostile now with... Uh, you know the it's called the melt you know and everything's melting and these rivers they were difficult to cross and I walked back down on my own it took me probably 12 hours fell over probably five times slipped was pretty tired and there was no way I could have got this this guy was blind he had snow blindness so I arranged for two Sherpas who were fit and strong to take this guy down and it took them
0: hours okay so you didn't leave him there no did, no. no he was
1: at, he was at advanced base camp where there were loads of people and two strong sherpas walked him down and i think it took them 17 18 hours right so, to get him down i didn't have any internet connection really i mean little bits here and there where you could get signal at base camp but i started getting these really um aggressive messages saying oh you you left this guy and you know you left him to die la 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 and i'm like well, where's all this coming up from?
0: But where were the other guys? Where were the guys that left them in the first place? S-
1: still up at 8,000 metres. Knobs. Anyway, next thing you know, and this is social media at its finest, the outsiders, friends and family of the guys that were still up on the mountain had obviously got the bit between their teeth. And it was like, it was. I, I don't use the word hate lightly because I don't like that word, but it was like a hate campaign against me. And that was the stick to beat me with that oh. I hadn't brought him down.
0: But you had arranged for him to get down. Like you had you had, yeah. you had, got him down.
1: But I'd also worked as an expedition leader for this company. But on this Everest trip, for all intents and purposes, I was a client. I was a full paying client. Yes, I got sponsored, but it, I was a full paying client. It wasn't my responsibility to to get this guy down. But... Of course, you know, I'd never, have, I wouldn't have left someone. But if I had have been leading that trip, someone wrote on social media, oh, if um, if my husband, if Holly had been the leader of this trip, my husband would be dead now. To which I replied, and I tried not to engage because, mm. you know, just adding fuel to the fire. But I, I wrote back, um, if Holly had been the leader of this expedition, your husband wouldn't have gone further than advanced base camp. He certainly wouldn't have been up at 8,000 metres. Anyway, then it all escalated and uh, these guys just, they were vile. And some of them hadn't summited and they had to be the hero. The ones that had summited treated their Sherpas horrendously. Like the Sherpas, sorry to use the word, but the Sherpas hated these guys. They were like so angry. Like one guy who was trying to be the big man, he, apparently he was just hiding behind rocks, crying on the mountain. And the Sherpa was like, we need to go down. And he wouldn't turn around. And, and then he got to the summit. But then he wouldn't tip his Sherpa. So when we got back to Kathmandu, the Sherpas, they had a standoff at one point on the mountain, the Sherpas and these awful, awful guys. And they had to throw money at the Sherpas to get the Sherpas to take them any higher. That's how bad it got. But when we got back to Kathmandu, and I didn't go to this, I couldn't even watch it, it was horrendous. They got all the Sherpas to come to this hotel in the promise that they were going to get their tips. Half of them didn't turn up, the guys. And the ones that did turn up, the money got handed over and it got thrown on the floor. And the Sherpas had to get on their hands and knees and pick this money up off the floor. And those Sherpas had just risked life and limb to get some of these guys to the summit. That's
0: disgusting. That's disgusting. And I was just
1: horrified, but then it carried on when I got home. they were absolute like character assassination slander libel on on social media about me saying you know i was I was negligent I was this that and the other
0: how you were know, you negligent you weren't in because, charge of because I
1: left because I left this this guy apparently,
0: but you didn't leave him I you didn't sorted leave him. out him getting down they left him and they were up on the top of the mountain
1: anyway then it escalated and it got really nasty, and I had to go and Get a solicitor onto this, and I had to send out cease and desist letters to some of the the main guys that were driving this.
0: Where were these people from? Were these British men or
1: some were British, some were American. um It was a mixture of. Couple of them were climbers. Made it even worse. Some of them were corporates. Some of them were just pure box tickers. But they all stuck together like glue. Not one of them stood out and said. We don't agree with the way that you're being treated here. But what was interesting, when I got home, then they started jumping off like rats off a, off a sinking ship. They started getting in touch with me. So there was a, one guy. Oh, did
0: they? Yeah. Oh, here we go.
1: Yeah. And not only some of the guys saying, I'm really sorry. I didn't feel that I could stick up for you at the time, but I realized you were treated very badly. Um, I also had women and men interestingly from other everest trips exact same thing bullying discrimination harassment i've never experienced anything like this on any other mountain but on everest it seems this is a common thing for men and women
0: oh so this is you aren't an isolated case no yet. way
1: by no i'm i've one woman say my my experience on everest mirrors yours absolutely mirrored it like and as i go back to my original fear Ego, high altitude, lots of money. When there's lots of money in the mix and fear and ego, some people it, it just brings out clearly brings out the worst in them. But so these guys, uh one of them he was terminally ill with cancer, and I got on fine with him um, individually. But when he was with this group, it was the the pack mentality. And he died several months later, and I'd lent him my sleeping bag. And he wrote in a media article, You know, oh, I was really grateful for the girl that lent me her, her sleeping bag because I wouldn't have got to the summit without it. A really close friend of his, who was by his bedside when he died, then reached out to me. And he was, um, I think he was Special Forces. And he said, um, I just want to let you know that this guy who's now died spoke at length about what happened on Everest and he felt so bad about what happened to you and this special forces guy said I completely wrongly judged you as well going on what I'd heard from all the the detractors and he was I just want to reach out and say I'm really sorry and I'm really sorry for the experience that you had it was nice in some ways to hear that but equally you know didn't step out at the time didn't Mm. say it at the time which is what was needed needed somebody to be like actually this is wrong and i can go on all day on little incidences that happen but the main thing was you know it was a horrible experience and i've never been a victim of a hate campaign or keyboard warriors i know it's more commonplace these days on social media but it's so personal and it just it was awful
0: that it was real, horrible, yeah, really attacking oh. your moral compass. and when it's your
1: profession, you know when you're you're a public figure and and you make your money from doing this, and you're a public speaker and everything else, you know I was turning up to so this is what I haven't told you, I was speaking at events, they were ringing ahead of events that I was listed to be a speaker at, what, and saying to the organizers don't don't have her she's she's reckless, she's negligent.
0: Can we name any of these people? Because they've named you. No, You can't.
1: I I wouldn't. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. You wouldn't give them the airtime. But the organisers, luckily, of these events knew me and were ringing me going, Holly, what's going on here? And some of those organisers, most of those organisers supported me and, you know, I still spoke. But then I arrived at these events thinking these bullies might be in the audience. Oh,
0: that's going to play with your head.
1: Not one of them was at any of these events. And then I realised... And it's taken a long time, but they're cowards, pussies. Yeah, they're cowards. Yeah. Not one of them came to my face. So whilst they were doing all the social mediaing when I was still at base camp, not one of them came to my face and said we've got a problem with you. Yeah, it was through social media that I found all of this out. And when you're out in the field and you're isolated, you've got no defence. And it was it was it was awful, Andy. I have to say, it, sounds it, was, awful. it was horrendous. One of the Sherpas that I climbed with or hiked with, trekked in with, he resigned because of this. And that's his livelihood. And he felt so strongly about how badly bad this expedition had been. He resigned.
0: Not just because of the way they treated you, but because of the way they got treated themselves yeah. by these guys.
1: Absolutely. Oh, and then one of them went back the following year because he didn't climb it the year before. And he named me again the following year as a as a reason why he didn't summit. So he got another legal letter to say, you know, a cease and desist letter um, to say, you know, basically, I'll, I'll be taking you to court if you continue to assassinate my character in this way.
0: What he's saying is the reason that he didn't summit because no, of you. Because say. if he says like... I didn't summit because Holly stole all my oxygen tanks, or I didn't summit because yeah. Holly stole my jacket, or stole my crampons, or yeah. stole my sleeping bag, or took all the sherpa, so we had no weight, yeah. or Holly took the mountain away and we couldn't climb it. That's like, it. okay, that 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 could make sense, but yeah. what what's he saying?
1: I mean, it was all hinged around this snow blind guy who um, needed to get down. And... But he
0: didn't take him down.
1: No, he was already gone down. So then I think his thing was, oh, I was coordinating things from base camp. Like, oh, I was needed at base camp to coordinate. It's like, no, you weren't. Oh, Seriously. so that's the hero bit. The, Sher- like, oh, the, I was, Sherpas, was the Sherpas know, know the route from advanced base camp back down to base camp. They, they didn't need someone coordinating. Uh, yeah, it was something along the, oh, I needed to call in a, a vehicle to come and pick him up. Again, there's guys at base camp that, it's this great thing called a radio.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, he wasn't needed at base camp.
1: No, just like I said, it, people have to go home a hero. And, and unfortunately, it's often at the expense of others. And, and I, I hate to say it, but on Everest, I, I, I do wonder if you're a bit of a target because there's so few women there. Mm. So it was, it was an awful experience. And I actually went back to a base camp on the south side with the Sherpas that I'd climbed it with, not on a commercial trip or anything, just to make peace and be like that this is a beautiful mountain and I'm so glad that I got to experience that and you know summiting yes it was great but you know if I had got sick or someone else had got sick that was you know that I needed to help then I wouldn't have been hell-bent on I wasn't hell-bent on the summit I just went about doing Mm. what you do when you're climbing Everest and and I, I did have a an amazing 30 minute summit with blue skies but i said in a report that i wrote afterwards that i was on the mountain 47 days and climbing everest was the easy part emotionally and psychologically i summited everest 47 times you know and that was that the easy bit was sitting on the summit so it puts you off a bit yeah it puts you off because it's you just don't know when you go on a commercial expedition you don't know what you're getting
0: you talk about Everest sometimes being like an apocalypse movie,
1: A zombie apocalypse. Yeah,
0: what, what are you talking about there? Like, what's 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 going on?
1: Yeah, so um, I shouldn't laugh because um, it's, it's not a, a topic to be joked around. But back to the the dead. You know, I saw I, I Sherpa was doing a study of of how many uh, dead people on the north side, and he said to me, "How many people did you pass?" from camp three up to the summit. And I said, maybe nine. And he was like, just, just so you know, Holly, um, I've, I've recorded 24. I was like, wow, I must have missed them. And he was like, they were right on the trail. You know, it was freaky. You'd be climbing up a ladder and there'd be two bodies dangling on a rope next to the ladder. You'd be like, oh my God, like zombie apocalypse. But where that comes, where I got quoted for saying that was, so there's the dead, and, but it's then there's the near dead and that's the freaky bit. So you'll see rocks, a body draped over a rock. You'll be like, oh, another dead body. But then they move.
0: Oh, God.
1: And you're like, hang on a minute. And then back to clarity of mind. Am I losing my mind? You know, am I? Am I is the high altitude like getting to me here? And then you look a few meters to the left or the right, and you'll see a Sherpa having a cigarette. Now, these bodies, these alive, unconscious people are roped, to the Sherpas, one Sherpa in front, one behind, with a metre rope, with the body in the middle. And they're literally dragging them up, dragging them back down. The Sherpas told me that they had to hide behind some of these people, prop them up on the summit, and hide behind them to hold them upright for their summit photo. So that's why I called it the zombie apocalypse, because I saw quite a few of the... Thought they were dead, and then an arm or a leg moved, and then you start thinking you you start thinking you're losing your mind.
0: Because <laughs> it was on another mountain where you you started to lose your mind a little bit, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So, um, probably the hardest mountain I've climbed, and it's a technical Everest isn't a technical mountain. Everest is a long walk at high altitude, essentially. Like it's it's forty seven days above five thousand meters. The challenge of Everest is definitely the, the, the altitude and, and just how long you're on the mountain. But Amar de Blum, I led an expedition on that. So that's technical mountain, 6,800 meters, beautiful mountain. It, it dominates the skyline when you're, you're trekking through the Khumbu Valley. You know, like the um, Paramount film logo. Yeah, It's like that, even though that's not that mountain. It, it, it's a beautiful looking mountain. But it's tough. It's mixed climbing, so from so you got to Google this. Like anyone wants to see a, a cool campsite, Google Ama de Blam Camp Two, and it's like a bird's nest with about four tents on it, and that's at six and a half thousand meters. And I sleepwalk, so my mum had a fit when she saw this picture before I went. So I had to be tied to somebody in the tent. Oh my god! On this campsite because I'd have just could have just walked straight off the edge. But yeah, you're rock climbing up to, to this, this campsite and then up to the summit is, is ice climbing, mixed climbing. It's tough. The exposure is huge. So, you know, there's like 2,000-meter drop straight down or more. Shit. So climbing up, got to the summit. It was a long summit push. It was a 24-hour summit push. We were quite slow. So from the summit down to that crazy bird's nest camp, I did 41 cells, 41 rappels.
0: Really? Okay. Okay. So it's very technical.
1: And they don't change the ropes from the previous. Like new ropes get put in every year. So you get to these um, anchors, and there's this big pile of ropes. But it's a common occurrence that someone in their tiredness, if it's dark or whatever, could clip on the wrong rope, and the rope breaks. And experienced mountaineers have died just clipping the wrong rope, rope breaks. You're, you're out of there. So for me, because we were slow, we ended up in the dark. 41 abseils. The last half are in the dark. You're abseiling down and you don't know. It's pitch dark. It's like abseiling into a pitch dark abyss. And you're just thinking, I hope I'm clipped on the right rope here. Doing anything 41 times requires concentration. But this is seriously life or death here. So all I could say, because I was exhausted, I was fully hallucinating and I hadn't peed for 24 hours. hadn't even thought about stopping for a pee. And the minute I thought, oh, I haven't had a pee, I peed myself. (laughs) And it was really nice in those few moments of, yes, that's really warm. Awesome. And then obviously, you know, it's not good at all. Soaking wet and it gets very cold. And all I could say was lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. That's all I could think in my head for the undoing the, the carabiners, clipping on the ropes, you know, really yeah. screwing them up. That's all I could do was lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. Anyway, these hallucinations got so bad. I just saw faces everywhere. Everywhere.
0: Is this in the dark?
1: This is in the semi-dark. So it's semi-dark, it's, okay. there's rocks. Okay. His faces.
0: His faces on the rocks.
1: Then there's like, it's like being in Narnia, the ice palace. And they're like, come in, Holly, come in. There's a four-poster bed, there's a hot tub. They were
0: talking to you. The faces were telling you to go in. And it's like,
1: come and relax. So, you know, most mountaineers have heard stories or experienced themselves the whole extreme tiredness and hallucinations. You know, all you want to do is sit down and rest, but you know. The minute you sit down... You did. You're dead. You're not going to wake up. And there's something very strong. It's a very strong life force, however exhausted you are, that just keeps being like, you, you, can't, you can't do this. You, you can't go to that four-poster bed. You can't get in that hot tub. And it was just luring me in. And it was like the mountain was really friendly. Like, come on, Holly. Come and chill out. We'll come and relax. And you just think, this mountain is cold. <laughs> It's hostile and it doesn't care about you. Like I'm just going to sit down, go to sleep and I will be dead. Exposure. I've never experienced hallucinations like it. It was so vivid and real. And then I got back to that bird's nest tent and the girl, one of the girls I was climbing with, I crawled into the tent exhausted and I was just like, in case you can smell anything, I've peed myself. And then I had to like time myself. So I didn't have a, but I was so exhausted. I don't think I was sleepwalking anyways, but it was freaky. But it was a real eye opener. Like, you know, these mountains, you just can't mess around on them. You've got to know what you're doing. You've really, you've got to do your preparation as much as you can beforehand. And I don't think this happened because I was underprepared. I think it happened because it was a slow summit push. Because it was so steep and exposed, like even the Sherpa that we were with, Was dry reaching, and vomiting, and and I'd had other experiences on that expedition as well. Like one guy, he came up to six and a half thousand meters to the camp, and on the way up to the summit, and he didn't want to. He didn't tell anyone. He hadn't brought his sleeping bag. He didn't want the extra weight, so he just got in this tent and laid down on the ground, on the ice. And luckily, because we were going for the summit. We realised, like, quite soon after he'd gone to sleep, that he was just on the ice, and then we, you know, I arranged for him to be taken. Well, he got put in a sleeping bag and warmed up, and then got taken down. And it's like, seriously, what were you thinking? Oh, I didn't want to carry the extra weight, so I'd have carried the weight for you. You know, we're talking two, three kilos here, and this, you know, people start thinking, behaving strangely, and making bad decisions. It's crazy. It is a crazy, it's a crazy environment. I wouldn't be, I'm never surprised by things I see on the mountains.
0: So you're not just into extreme stuff when it comes to climbing Everest, skydiving. You've done the Mongolian horse race, which is gnarly. What is that? Like you ride 29 horses in what, how many days?
1: Uh, 25 horses in, in, I I did a thousand kilometers in nine days. And, and just it was, it was by phenomenal. yourself,
0: like, humping across Mongolia.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's Mongolia like... is a phenomenal place. Wherever the eye can see, you can go. Yeah. Like, it's just a giant expanse of openness. And we, we just had checkpoints and, and just go go wherever you want, do whatever you want, and get to this point, get to this point, get to this point, change your horse.
0: How was the bum?
1: Do you know, I was actually one of the... How was the, the chafe? I was one of the only riders, if not the only rider, that avoided the chafe. Some
0: people... These are to wild ride. horses, aren't they?
1: Yeah, so they call them semi-wild because these horses, they're feisty, they're small. They're called horses, but they're, they're ponies. But um, they fend for themselves for up to seven months of the year. In the mountains,
0: and the Mongolians just yeah. round them up and then give them round them, to them you. up and
1: then they're rebroken. So they're pretty feral. A lot of these animals, you know. Oh, no, it was it was an insane adventure. I mean, it was it was it was
0: raw. Your horse ran away from you at one point, didn't it?
1: Yeah. So I the plan was I'd ride on my own, but when I got there, you know, you're deep in the Mongolian steppe and you're like, you know, I'm a blonde Western chick. You know, there's nothing heroic about riding this on your own. So two Western blonde chicks and we teamed up and thought, we'll, you know, we'll do this together. A couple of days I did on my own. Um And we, so there are two rules to the race. One, you can't ride one horse more than 40 kilometers. And second rule, you can't ride at night because the terrain potentially too dangerous in places so it's four o'clock in the afternoon we know we've got four hours left of daylight to get to the next checkpoint we're in pole position second and third in the race you know going for it and we thought we'll take the direct route we'll go up and over this mountain and the checkpoint will be the other side so that's what we did we went up to the mountain Um, checkpoint wasn't the other side there's another mountain it's like right okay we'll, we'll go up there and it will be over the other side by that point we were losing daylight. We'd run out of water. Um, we had one one man tent between us, and these horses—they hobble them in Mongolia. So they, this piece of leather that goes around their legs to stop them running off.
0: Like okay, a figure eight. So it's just, that's it. So you don't tie them up to anything.
1: But what they didn't tell us was a hobbled horse can hop up to five kilometers an hour. Okay. Two hobbled horses hobbled together can hop up to five kilometers an hour it's incredible to watch they hop in unison
0: and not ideal to watch that
1: not great when it's your horses yeah. no um so i didn't have any hobbles i'd had mine uh, stolen or i'd left them somewhere one of the two and um so the girl i was with she hobbled her horse i tied my horse to a great big boulder because it was all there was um we put up this tiny one-man tent and it was pitch dark by that point. The light had gone down. The temperature had plummeted from 30 degrees to minus two. Um, we had no water. It's pitch dark. And there's all these freaky noises like wolves and big herds of animals, wild horses. Da, da, da Anyway, next thing you know, hobbled horse hobbles off, hops off. And then this great big boulder just dragged past the tent. And that was my horse dragging this rock down the hill following the other horse. And we'd lost the horses and we just thought, you know, we're not going out in this pitch dark. we would deal with this at first light. So first light comes, surprising to us, because it was a windy night. The tent's flapping and these horses don't like flappy material. The horses are right next to the tent. That made me think, what else is out there that's scary enough that they're hanging with the flapping tent? Anyway, we thought, great, we'll get the horses, we'll get back in the race. You know, we're, we're still in a good position. Um, it took me a further eight hours to catch, because I named my horses after the phonetic alphabet, and, and it took me a further eight hours to catch golf, as he was known. Mm-hmm. He did have another name by that point. But, you know, I tried everything, like natural horsemanship, just pretending to eat next to him and, and grab him, and he, I just couldn't get a hold of this horse.
0: You needed a carrot or an apple.
1: I did, Anyway, finally got him. we got to the next checkpoint. You know, we were all pretty parched. We hadn't had any water and by for 14 hours, by that point, the horses hadn't either. And it was now roasting hot again. So we're out of the race. We've lost our position. But it made me realize there was no prize for winning this race. Like the winner did it in seven days. I did it in nine. And he sat at the finish line for two days, wishing he was still in the race, back out on the step. So we were riding 13 hours a day and hanging out at night. We were sleeping in the yurts and word had got across along a thousand kilometers that we were, we were coming, like this bunch of Western riders raising money for this charity that supports the, the nomadic families. and For All every, the locals. Yep. Yeah, so and for every horse we rode, it paid for one year of schooling. For the child in the family ah. that owned the horse, so you can imagine every Tom, Dick, and ta- Harry were turning up with their horses, trying to get them in the race. So yeah. We ride the
0: horses, so they have a they had like a lineup. Didn't they, a of horses horses and you'd pick it.
1: So I learned what's the ra- what's the Mongolian word for racehorse, and because uh, I was trying to get a faster horse, and it was funny, like they were feisty, like they, the Mongolians were having to tack up the horses for me, the race horses. Because they, they were just spinning round and they were, you know, just raring to go. And I just got on a couple of the horses and they just galloped for two and a, did 40Ks in about two and a quarter hours, just flat out. And these aren't endurance, like fast endurance horses. These horses would probably be used to short bursts. But a full 40K gallop was, it was, you know, I was sort of hanging on with my GPS. ah, Pick a point in the horizon and ride towards it
0: where can people find out more about how they can get involved and and help out with your charity
1: yes yeah, so it's all there's lots of information on the website worldfemalerangerweek.org um, and I, there's just so many exciting developments happening that that's all going to be posted up onto the website so um, I'm, I'm really excited at what the next year holds howmanyelephants.org is my is my charity
0: Okay, and we'll put the link to all these websites in the synopsis of this episode. So yep. whatever device you're listening to this on, you can just scroll down yep. and you'll be able to see the link. And what's Thank your, you. what's your uh, social media?
1: At Holly Budge and at How Many Elephants and at World Female Ranger Week.
0: You are greedy.
1: Boom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. He's got some great stories and I hope people enjoy it. And I'm sure they will.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
0: only from rustolium